This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jim Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our program today, I want to give focus to a particular worldview in light of some of the presidential candidates. Let me explain. Two candidates for the Republican presidential nomination are practicing Mormons, John Huntsman and Mitt Romney. That two of the more prominent candidates are Mormons is a bit unusual. That fact also means it is important that we understand the worldview of Mormons. Finally, that Huntsman and Romney are Mormons does not disqualify them as candidates, nor does it mean that either one would be incompetent because of their Mormon faith. I believe nonetheless that the Mormon worldview needs to be scrutinized and evaluated for its viability and commitment to truth. Hence, this edition of Issues in Perspective will be devoted to such an analysis. I want to do it in several different parts. Part 1. The History of Mormonism. Mormonism is by far the largest and fastest growing with as many as 10 million adherents worldwide. Its beginning as a worldview revolved totally around Joseph Smith, who was born on December the 23rd, 1805 in Sharon, Vermont. His early years were greatly influenced by his father, who curiously spent a great deal of time searching for buried treasure using unorthodox and often occult methods. His life changed in 1820 when he supposedly received a vision from God the Father and the Son, who told him that all other religions were an abomination, but that he was the prophet to bring restoration. In 1823, another vision from the angel Moroni further solidified Smith's charge from God. The angel informed him that he would uncover a number of golden plates that needed translating. He discovered these plates inscribed with what he called, and these were his words, Reformed Egyptian Hieroglyphics. He found them outside Palmyra, New York. He was able to translate them with a huge pair of spectacles that he called, and this has echoes of what's in the Old Testament, the Urim and Thummim. According to his story, between 1827 and 1829, he translated the plates, and then in 1830 he published them as the Book of Mormon. These plates were purportedly taken to heaven by Moroni. We're never going to be able to find them, according to Joseph Smith. In another vision from John the Baptist in 1829, Smith received the Aaronic priesthood, he said, and he founded the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He subsequently relocated his religious headquarters to Ohio and then Missouri. Mormons were accused of a number of crimes in these places and were required then to leave Missouri in 1839 by order of the governor. The Mormons then, led by Joseph Smith, relocated to Illinois, Nauvoo, Illinois to be specific, where he instituted the practice of polygamy. When Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram tried to destroy a local newspaper office because of its stand against the Mormons, 
They were arrested and put in jail in Carthage, Illinois, a nearby community. Tragically, an angry mob stormed the prison and on June 27, 1844, shot and killed both Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram. They were martyrs of the Mormon church. That leadership mantle of heading up Mormonism then passed to Brigham Young, the first president, as he was called, and prophet of the church. Under the leadership of Brigham Young, the Mormons relocated to Salt Lake City in July 1847. There they settled down and built their unique brand of religion. Brigham Young's influence was virtually dictatorial, but it provided the stability needed for this group to grow. During this period, the United States government sought to make Utah a state, but first the Mormons resisted this effort and later refused to give up polygamy as a condition of statehood. Only when the government threatened the Mormons with property laws did they change their doctrine and abolish polygamy as a doctrine of the church. Today, the Mormons live in a highly structured and organized religious set of beliefs. Their structure in terms of the religious denomination is very structured. It's led by a first president, which is what he's called, a council of 12 apostles, and a council of 70. Within this denominational group, there are also bishops, counselors, and teachers at all levels. Furthermore, virtually all Mormon men serve as deacons and elders. Men over 12 years old are also members of what's called the Mormon priesthood of Aaron and Melchizedek. Because they regard themselves as the true church, Mormons often call non-Mormons Gentiles. For the Mormons, their scriptures define their faith. Let me explain. They regard scripture as the Bible, the Book of Mormon, a book called Doctrines and Covenants, and finally a book called The Pearl of Great Price. Ken Boa, who was a former teacher of mine, summarizes the content of the Book of Mormon quite eloquently. Let me quote from that. The Book of Mormon, which supposedly was written by several people from about 600 B.C. to about 428 A.D., tells of the migration of an ancient people from the Tower of Babel to Central America. These people, who were known as the Jaredites, perished because of apostasy. A later migration occurred in 600 B.C. when a group of Jews were supposedly told by God to flee Jerusalem before the Babylonian captivity. These Jews, led by Lehi and his son Nephi, crossed the Pacific Ocean and landed in South America. There they divided into two opposing nations, the Nephites and the Lamanites. The Lamanites, cursed with dark skin because of their iniquity, were the ancestors of the American Indians. Similarly, the black people are said to have been cursed with dark skin because they are the descendants of Cain, the first murderer. The Nephites recorded prophecies about the coming of Christ, and after his resurrection, Christ visited them in South America. There, Christ instituted communion, baptism, and the priesthood for the Nephites. Later, they were annihilated in a battle with the Lamanites in A.D. 428. Before they were killed in battle, Mormon, 
the compiler of the divinely revealed Book of Mormon, and his son Moroni took the golden plates on which this revelation was recorded and buried them. These plates, according to Mormon history, were uncovered 1,400 years later by, of course, Joseph Smith. Well, how reliable is this history that's recorded in the Book of Mormon, which I just summarized? There are several key points that demonstrate the Book of Mormon as unreliable as an historic text. Let me explain. There are no reliable witnesses to the plates Joseph Smith supposedly translated. Second, though the Book of Mormon was buried in A.D. 428 by Mormon and his son Moroni, it contains about 25,000 words verbatim from the King James Version of the Bible, which was recorded and translated in A.D. 1611. That is something they've never been able to answer. Thirdly, not too many years ago, I visited the new Mormon temple in Omaha, Nebraska, where I live. During the tour, one guest asked why there's no archaeological evidence for the historical claims of the Book of Mormon. Our guide could offer no answer, but the extensive claims of the book would necessitate some kind of evidence for the Nephites and the Lamanites and the Jaredites. There is no evidence. Finally, there is no evidence, absolutely none, of anything called Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. Nobody knows what Smith was talking about when he declared that's what those plates were written in. Mormonism is a worldview that has generated passion and growth. There's no question about that. It has been an aggressive religion, expecting all teens to commit two years in missionary service, for which they raise their own funds. Also, the church, the Mormon church, leaders expect every Mormon to tithe 10% of their income. The result is that the LDS church is extremely wealthy, assets approaching $30 billion. Mormons are also visibly active in politics, and we see that in this presidential campaign, and social causes that promote conservative values and ethics. They are a powerful force in American culture. And that is a part of the pluralistic nature of our culture. But it is also imperative that we understand what a Mormon believes, hence this perspective. So as we transition to the second perspective on the program today about Mormonism, let me summarize some of their theology and their ethics. Just a couple of key points around God, Christ, Scripture, and salvation. For example, God. Well, Mormonism teaches that God the Father was once a man, but became God. He has a physical body, as does his wife, whom they call the Heavenly Mother. Mormons deny the doctrine of the Trinity, arguing that the Father, Son, and Spirit are actually three separate gods. Mormons likewise, likewise teach that it is possible for all faithful Mormons to one day become gods as well. As God is, we was, we are now are, as God is, we will become, they often say. How about Jesus? Well, Mormonism teaches that Jesus is a separate God from the Father, whom they often refer to as Elohim. He is the spirit child of the Father and Mother in heaven. 
He is therefore the elder brother, that's a phrase they often use, of all men, spirit beings. His body was created through sexual union between Elohim and Mary. In fact, Mormonism teaches that Jesus was married, that he was a polygamist to both two Marys and Martha. His death on Calvary's cross, according to Mormon theology, does not provide full atonement, but it does guarantee the resurrection for everyone. That's why this whole matter of Scripture is so imperative and so important. Without question, Mormonism equates the Book of Mormon with the Bible. It is indeed called Another Testament of Jesus Christ. I remember not too long ago seeing a commercial that was funded and sponsored by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, and it had a very powerful situation that was revealed. And then it said, why not write for a book that can help you, just like these people were helped? It's the Book of Mormon. It's another testament of Jesus Christ. Gave you an 800 number, gave you an address to call and request a free copy. Because this book, the Book of Mormon, is equated, in effect, as authoritative as the Bible in some ways even more authoritative, because it is an additional revelation that adds to what is already in the Bible. That Book of Mormon is complemented by other Mormon texts, the Pearl of Great Price and Doctrines and Covenants, which gives additional detail about the belief system of Mormonism. Finally, in terms of salvation, the Latter-day Saint Church actually defines salvation as an exaltation to godhood, which can only be earned through obedience to LDS leaders, through Mormon baptism, through tithing, and through marriage, which incidentally they believe is eternal, and through secret temple rituals. They camp heavily on 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-nine where the LDS Church believes and teaches that present-day Mormons can be vicariously baptized for their ancestors, who will then be saved. Indeed, when I visited that Mormon temple here in Omaha, you, you were able to see this massive baptism, quite, quite huge and large, and as you stepped down into the baptismal, there was a little computer there. And in that computer, you would load the names of all of your departed ancestors as you go through a vicarious baptism. You're baptized in their place, and that therefore regards them as now being saved. It's, a, it's really quite an amazing thing to see. Mormons spend a great deal of time, therefore, studying their family's genealogy. They want to uncover as far back as they possibly can so that they can be baptized in the place of their departed ancestors. Finally, then, as the third perspective on this program devoted to Mormonism, how do we as evangelical Christians, genuine, biblically-centered Christians, build bridges to Mormons? That's not an easy thing to do, but let me suggest several thoughts here. First of all, bridge number one. Mormonism has a strong commitment to the spiritual world, the realm beyond the physical. 
It is possible to connect with this spiritual world through the specific activities of a Mormon believer. As Bible-centered Christians, we believe as well, but teach clearly that a relationship with God is possible only through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. In effect, as we build a relationship with Mormons, we must keep coming back to Jesus. He is the only way. Through our lifestyle, through our words, we can demonstrate that powerful and profound truth. Mormons believe in a spiritual world. They simply do not have certainty on how to get there. Bridge number two. Mormons read the Bible, but through the grid of their other scriptures. The Book of Mormon is needed, in effect, they argue, to truly explain what the Bible teaches. The end result is that the Bible is not enough. We must be ready to demonstrate an apologetic for the Bible as the unique Word of God. We must be prepared to use God's Word to demonstrate the deity of Jesus, the unique saving work of Jesus, and the clarity that salvation is through faith in Jesus, not through works. It is important to keep the focus on God's Word, not their books. God will honor the use of his word, and if they do not want to discuss the Bible, then do not get engaged in a conversation about their written works unless you have adequately studied them. Remember, it is not our job to change a Mormon. That's God's business. Our job is to be a faithful witness to the truth that is revealed in the Bible, and as much as we possibly can use the Bible— Isaiah 55.11 declares that God's word never returns void. It accomplishes its purpose. There's power in the word of God. That leads me then to bridge number three. As with Christianity, Mormonism calls for an intense commitment. Few Mormons joined the LDS Church because they were drawn initially to the Book of Mormon. The LDS Church meets basic human needs. They need to belong. They need to have fellowship. They need to have a sense of identity and purpose, to be affirmed as a person, to have answers for life's enduring problems. Also, many become Mormons because of the need for authority and certainty in their lives. For the Mormon, there's little ambiguity about life. There's little tension the church is very structured. Their doctrine is very structured. Your responsibilities as a Mormon are very structured. That's where the certainty is. It's not in a set of beliefs. It's in the certainty of the structures of the church. Therefore, we must not only be willing to demonstrate the trustworthiness of the Bible and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, but also the authenticity and genuineness of biblical Christianity. The fruit of the Spirit, detailed, of course, in Galatians 5, and 23, are powerful manifestations of that authenticity. Christians must also manifest the same intense commitment to Jesus and to the truth that cultists manifest. 
We have the answers. We have the truth. The supernatural nature of our walk must match the power of our words. Let me give you what I think is a piercing example of how to do this. In Acts 17, verses 16 through 24, is the paragraph to which I'm referring. The Apostle Paul met the Athenian philosophers on their own turf. Athens was one of the great intellectual centers of the Greco-Roman world in the first century. There was a school of philosophers that met in the Areopagus on Mars Hill, up near where the Parthenon is. Paul walked up that mountain, that hill, and as he's walking up, he saw this, this statue, this, this idol, if you will, to an unknown god. In his discussion, in his dialogue with these philosophers, and they're named in Acts 17, Stoics, Epicureans, and others, he recognizes their spiritual people. He recognizes their spiritual need. He recognizes their religiosity. He recognizes their quest for truth. But he demonstrates the inadequacy of these alone. He quotes from their philosophers, but he stresses the inadequacy of those philosophers alone. He points them to Jesus. That methodology, as he uses a a form of the design argument, quoting from their philosophers, as he pushes and presses the point of their religiosity and their quest for truth, he drives them back to Jesus. He brought up the resurrection. That alienated some of them, but the end of the chapter, it names the names of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's a great methodology. Be sensitive to, understand, have the basic details of the worldview at your fingertips. You know what you're talking about, but keep driving them back to confronting Jesus. No matter whom we're talking with, whether it's a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or a Hindu or a Buddhist, the power of our message, indeed the power of the gospel, centers on Jesus. And however we deal with Mormons as we build relationships with them, friendships with them, or whatever, it is driving them back to Jesus. I did this perspective on this particular program today because we have two individuals running for president who are from the Mormon faith. I'm not doing this to condemn them. We have had many different religious worldviews represented in the White House and indeed represented even in the present Congress. But you and I need to understand that content of their belief system. And because these two Mormons are running for the highest office in the land, this is a good opportunity for you and me to come to terms with what do they believe? What is unique about their worldview? And how can I, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, interested in the gospel, how can I minister to them? You understand what they believe, you see the major areas in which they're faulty, particularly in how they look at Christ and salvation, and then begin to build bridges. That's always the approach we should have. That's what Paul modeled for us in Acts 17, and that's how we should live. May God bless you and me as we try to represent him in this manner in this dark world. 
You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.